Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So welcome to Pardon Me. I'm hoping it's welcome back to Pardon Me because this is our second episode. And today we're going to be talking to Emily Bazelon, one of the great journalists about law and legal matters, uh, about how the Judiciary Committee behaved in the previous week and what's on the docket from here. We'll also be talking to Adam Gopnik, one of the brightest journalists ever, about historical implications of impeachment and how even British impeachment impinges on this impeachment. We'll also have a little bit of comedy with our friends from CT Improv. All of that and the proverbial more coming up right after the proverbial this. On this solemn day, I'm I recall that the first order of business for members of Congress is the solemn act to take an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. The framers of the Constitution prescribed a clear remedy for presidents who so violate their oath of office. That is the power of impeachment. Today, in service to our duty to the Constitution and to our country, the House Committee on the Judiciary is introducing two articles of impeachment, charging the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, with committing high crimes and misdemeanors. The President's oath of office appears to mean very little to him. But the articles put forward today will give us a chance to show that we will defend the Constitution and that our oath means something to us. History has its eyes on you. All right, that of course is Speaker Pelosi and Chairman Nadler and Schiff announcing the articles of impeachment. We have set it to the music of Lynn Manuel Miranda. And I'm Colin McEnroe. Welcome to episode two of Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show. This is the episode titled Articles of Impeachment and the Toxic Water Yo-Yo. And in order to find out what that means, you have to listen at least until the Adam Goptic interview, which comes later in the show. We also have some questions from listeners. We're going to get answered by none other than Emily Bazelon, who's also the first guest that you're going to hear. There's also a holiday <laughs> impeachment sketch by CT Improv. So stay for all of it. We're going to keep doing the show, obviously, for as long as the impeachment season lasts. And that obviously will take us, you know, at least into the beginning of 2020. All right. Uh, we're talking now here at the beginning of the show with Emily Bazelon, staff writer for The New York Times Magazine, a co-host of the Slate Political Gab Fest, the Truman Capote Fellow at Yale Law School, and the author of one of the big books, I think, of the past year, 
charged. And I'm trying to remember the subtitle. Emily, give me the subtitle. It's long. It is long. The Movement to Transform American Prosecution and End Mass Incarceration. All right. A must for Christmas giving. Actually, if there's somebody, you know, on your Christmas list who's kind of into that kind of stuff, a kind of, you know, law freak or something, buy that book. Uh, the freakier, the better. The freakier, the better. All right. So let, let's talk a little bit about this. We happen to be speaking in the late morning on Friday. So the articles of impeachment have just passed in the Judiciary Committee. We'll be forwarded to the House. Emily, maybe you can just quickly remind people, because this podcast is a little bit for people who aren't staying granular with this. The first article is abuse of power. What does that mean? That means that the president has exceeded his power or used it in a way that he's not supposed to do, that could be illegal. And the phrase I think that the House Democrats are emphasizing is this idea that he corruptly solicited election interference from Ukraine in the 2020 election. So we've got that. And then the one that I'm especially interested in talking about today is is this second article, which is basically obstruction of Congress. Tell us about that. Yeah. So this is Congress saying, look, you in an unprecedented way, that's the word they're using, refused to comply at all with our investigation. You told every single person who works for the government not to testify. We issued 71 orders for documents or other kinds of evidence, and you didn't produce any of it. And so that amounts to obstruction of Congress. And this is really a separation of powers question, right? I mean, Congress has the power to investigate. It's been investigating presidents since the founding. And this is part of its independent power as a separate branch. And so for a a presidential administration to decide we're not going to comply at all, this is way beyond we're asserting executive privilege because we want to keep some particular communication with the president confidential. This is just we're not taking part in this investigation. And so Congress is saying that just goes way, way too far. Right. So I I want to just pause over that because one of the debates that is kind of welled up over the last few days or so is, is this the first of the four impeachments to go to the full House? Is this the first one where there isn't an actual criminal offense assigned? We know that there need not be a criminal offense, but it's still an interesting question. And I find myself wondering, well, why isn't that a criminal offense? In other words, if you know Congress contacts me and I say, well, I just don't feel like participating in this process, I regard it as frivolous. So no, I'm staying home. Aren't I in a huge amount of trouble for doing that? (laughs) Well, that's a really good question. Congress does have the power to hold you in contempt, Mm -hmm. right? So Congress can send its sergeant-in-arms. It can put people in jail and hang on to them until they testify in a kind of parallel process to what we think of as criminal or civil contempt of court, where you're refusing to comply with a court order and then the court can detain you. The issue is that Congress has not exercised that power since the 1930s. It's kind of gone to sleep. And so this question of whether this is really criminal really is kind of unresolved. We don't really know the answer. It would depend on what a court would say about the matter. And because Congress has not tried to push its 
jailer powers in such a long time. It's a kind of fuzzy area. Lauren's tribe and lots of other people have said the thing that I just said and t- took it for granted, but maybe we shouldn't. He said every scholar who looks at this concludes that the impeachment process need not map directly onto a set of criminal offenses. Is that true? Does every scholar think that? <laughs> I'm asking every scholar you doesn't think anything, okay, right? True. I mean, there are definitely dissenters. What we have in the Constitution in the impeachment clause is this idea of high crimes or misdemeanors, which are relatively undefined. The framers did mention a th- few things along the way, like bribery. But it is true that it's up to Congress to define what seems to Congress like a high crime or misdemeanor. And so, you know, we do have a precedent for this idea of an impeachment charge of abuse of power. Nixon, in the end, resigned, but that was what they were thinking of drawing up against Nixon. So I think you have in both of these articles impeachment, you have some precedent. But on the other hand, it's true that the Democrats stayed away from, for example, making bribery into a charge. That is a criminal offense. But then they were worried they were going to get caught up in whether they were meeting every element of the criminal statute. And so they decided that this was the cleaner way to go. Now, I think we can all fairly safely assume that there'll be a debate in the House probably starting Wednesday, that ultimately President Trump will be impeached. It'll go to the Senate. At that point, we're getting some interesting signals from Mitch McConnell, who will be the person leading the Senate majority in all of this, that, you know, he basically sees this as a done deal, that he's going to coordinate strongly with the White House on this. So this is also a way in which the Senate, quote, trial, unquote, seems a little different from a typical trial. That one of the parties involved in trying the case would be coordinating so heavily with the person on trial. Yeah, it's really pretty striking. I mean, McConnell said, I'm coordinating with White House counsel. There will be no difference between the president's position and our position as to how to handle this. That seems really clear. And yet at the same time, McConnell is also supposed to take an oath at the beginning of the trial in which he promises to be impartial. It's hard to say how those two statements square. I don't really know what you're supposed to do with that. Is McConnell free to make up whatever set of rules he and his majority want to make up? I mean, there's at some point, John Roberts, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, shows up, probably not in a Gilbert and Sullivan robe the way Rehnquist did, and presides over this case in the Senate. Can he say, for example, let's see the House managers show up, Adam Schiff and whoever the other House managers, they show up and say, well, no, we really want to put on a trial here and we want to present evidence and we want to do all kinds of stuff like that. And McConnell doesn't. Does Roberts have a role in resolving that or can McConnell just set the rules? McConnell can pretty much set the rules. I mean, Roberts is presiding. If he made a judgment that McConnell made a move that violated due process in some fundamental way, I think Roberts could speak up. But by and large, in the same way that the House has been making its rules for impeachment, the Senate makes its own rules for removal. There's some basic things that McConnell will stick to. He's going to need 51 votes to call a witness. That's having some effect on which witnesses they're going to call. But I don't think you're going to likely to see a proceeding in which Chief Justice John Roberts, you know, is stepping in um, and stepping on McConnell's toes. My favorite fact about this part of the discussion is this is going to be the very first trial that Roberts has ever presided over because he was never a trial judge. That's he's just never played this role before in any courtroom at all. 
Well, this wouldn't be a very good preparation for any future trials he might preside over because it's nothing like a trial as, as far as I can tell. So on Slate Political Gap Fest, your colleague uh, David Plotz is getting darker and darker in, in the way that he looks at all of this. And he, like many other people, I think imagines that what this process seems to be doing is breaking the constitutional system of checks and balances. That, in fact, if McConnell can create whatever environment he wants to in the Senate, that means there can't be you know, an effective vote for removal and that you have going forward a system that just won't work anymore. It won't work with President Trump and it probably won't work for other presidents because they'll never get the two-thirds majority again. You seem a little less dark these days than Plotts, but then who isn't less dark than Plotts? How are you thinking about this? I think there are a lot of signs that our constitutional system is under stress. But in terms of the process for impeachment and removal, we are following the rules. Like we're not having a crisis about whether Trump should have a trial at all. I mean, right, you could imagine if McConnell was saying like, nope, we're not doing this. Now, that would really be out of the bounds of the Constitution. But he's sticking with the rules. I think the bigger fear is about whether impeachment will start to seem like something that's just a regular tool in the political partisan toolbox. On the other hand, you could have made that argument after the Bill Clinton impeachment trial, right, where I think there was less support for impeaching Clinton and the Republicans at the time went ahead anyway. So maybe there's a kind of sky is falling quality about that particular concern. I'm personally more worried about other ways in which I think we are seeing a kind of stress on the constitutional system. So, you know, this is not related to impeachment, but when you go back to the question of McConnell blocking Obama's Supreme Court nominee, Merrick Garland, Mm -hmm. that was what law professors sometimes call constitutional hardball. McConnell wasn't actually breaking any rules, but he was breaking a lot of norms. And it turns out that those norms were pretty crucial to, you know, the the operation of the Senate. And I think we're seeing in this very polarized partisan moment, increasing pressure with moves of that sort. Well, I mean, that's an argument made in the New York Times today by Carl Hulse that, you know, that yes, the way that McConnell handled judiciary nominations, you know, is a break with precedent, a break with norms, and a break towards hardball, that filibuster is also increasingly used that way, not as an extreme, but as a norm. And that, you know, there's a danger also that impeachment might become more like that, too, that we've obviously done it three times in a pretty short window after going a really long time with only one impeachment case, that maybe it'll just become the kind of thing you're talking about, where it isn't an extreme measure. It's just sort of part of standard operating procedure. Right. And I don't think we really want to live in that universe. It's It would be a waste of time. And if the country feels like minor transgressions by the president are being turned into fodder for impeachment, that could be really frustrating. So, you know, I understand why that concern is out there. I think what the Democrats in the House would say is that when you look at Trump's conduct with Ukraine, what you're seeing is a pressure campaign to effectively try to steal the next election. And that is such an important part of the decision-making process for them, right? Because You can say, like, well, let's just let the voters decide. But if you are concerned that one of the people running in that election is trying to cheat or influence it to his benefit and take out a rival, 
and in a way that is, you know, illegal or at least like a violation of constitutional rules. That's concerning. And I think that's why the Democrats feel like they need to send this message. You know, and speaking of sending messages, one of the more interesting things that I've read over the last 24 hours or so, Stephen Griffin from Tulane Law School writing in Balkanization, brought up the idea that, you know, this one thing the Senate could do if a certain number of Republicans were willing to, to consider it is at least create some kind of record about this and a record that at least implied some notion of a check on presidential power and on a certain kind of presidential activity. They could say, look, we don't think this rises to the level of conviction through the impeachment process, but we also don't countenance soliciting foreign interference in elections. We regard that as a problem. Don't do it again. <laughs> don't do it again. Uh, you know, in other words, instead of channeling their, their inner Doug Collins, if Republicans in the Senate were to say, we want to at least create a record of admonishment about this, even if we're not going to convict. We can discuss, A, whether that's probable, and B, whether that would do any good. I don't think it's probable for all the political reasons we've been talking about. You know, the big difference between what's happening now and the push eventually from Republican senators for Nixon to resign was that poll numbers supporting Nixon among Republicans fell. They were, for a long time, stayed really strong, but toward the end, they were moving toward 50 percent. And that's when you see Republican senators act. We have very strong approval ratings and rejection of impeachment from Republicans this time around. The numbers, I looked at this yesterday, they haven't budged. Only about nine and a half percent of Republicans support impeachment. So I think that explains the politics. But what's appealing about this idea is that it would be Congress asserting its institutional prerogative, right? It would be Congress not thinking simply in terms of partisanship and what's good for the Republican Party, but about the role of Congress to keep the president in check and keep the presidency in check, not personal to Trump. And to say, like, this is not acceptable conduct in our political system, I think it would actually send an important message. I just don't think it's likely to happen. It's also, I think there's a way in which messages just don't get heard very well anymore, too. I mean, I keep coming back to one of the things that Bob Mueller said, and I think he, he said it at the press con or the, you know, the sort of thing where he introduced the report and in his testimony is, you can say anything else you want about this report and debate things about it, but we are absolutely emphatic about the fact that Russia interfered in the 2016 election and, and will probably want to interfere again, and that everybody should take that absolutely seriously seriously. And when you think about that, and, and then you think about the conversations that just took place in the House Judiciary over and over again, kind of suggesting that, yes, maybe looking into this Ukraine version of the narrative you know, would have some merit, you wonder whether any message can be sent emphatically enough by anybody so that a substantial portion of the American public would embrace it as gospel. Yeah, I mean, I think that is a really good question and another key difference between now and Watergate. When Watergate happened, there were three big news reports every night basically reporting the same facts. Everybody was in accord about the facts. We have a much more fractured news landscape today. We have Fox News and other right-wing media effectively refusing to accept the conclusions about Russian meddling that Mueller, that the American intelligence community, all these folks are saying, yeah, that's what happened. 
because Trump is still really unwilling to accept those facts and prefers this unfounded conspiracy theory about Ukraine meddling, you've seen a lot of right-wing commentators and politicians stick with that narrative. And then I think people get confused and they start feeling like, I don't know what's true. And that's very destabilizing. That is like Putin's Russia when people start really losing faith in the media and in sources of information. All right, we're going to take a very quick break here. That was Emily Bazelon. Always great. And now we're going to get ready for Adam Gopnik from The New Yorker, whose intellect is always rather staggering to those of us who are just normally equipped in that department. Welcome back. This is Pardon Me. I'm Colin McEnroe. This is a weekly show we do for as long as the quote-unquote impeachment season lasts. Thanks for joining us. We're so excited as part of the show to have someone who has joined our regular show many times. Adam Gopnik is a staff writer for The New Yorker, the author of many books, most recently A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. He recently wrote a piece titled Stop Saying That Impeachment is Political for The New Yorker. Adam Gopnik, welcome back. It's wonderful to be back with you, Colin. So you begin this piece by talking about a certain kind of world-weary person, a pundit or observer of the impeachment process. I say afflicted with sleepy (laughs) sapiens, which was my favorite coinage for that piece. I I I write pieces for those coinages, and that was the one I liked. Right. I I was actually very envious of sleepy (laughs) sapiens, but I wondered whether you maybe had it copyrighted or trademarked at this point. Yes, this person of sleepy sapiens who says it's a political process. Now, I think usually what that word weary person means is, so don't try to map criminal jurisprudence right onto this because it's different. But you're saying there's a hazard in using that trope, that this is a political process. I think that there is. And I say in the piece and would say any in any context that obviously there's a sense in which every prosecution, every time you indict or arraign someone in any theater for what you think is criminal misconduct, it's partly political. You have to decide if it's worth taking to a jury, if you can get a conviction once it gets to a jury. And that depends in part on the political climate. You just have to think about something as horrible as the Jeffrey Epstein case to see how the political climate in one period is very different from the political climate in another. That's part of the background of all law and it's we understand it. But when people say that impeachment is political, what they often mean is, as you say partly, that it isn't the same as a judicial prosecution. But they also mean, look, count votes. If you can't make it work, then it doesn't count. It's a political process that has to play out politically, and the winners and losers should be judged on how skillfully they play that political game. And it seems to me that that completely misses the moral weight of impeachment. And in the piece, I call on the spirit of the one-time hero of every American conservative, Edmund Burke, as my guide, philosopher, and friend. Right. So you use Burke in this case, of which I was unaware. Like most Americans, I just assumed we invented impeachment to talk about how, in fact, in many cases, and we can even sort of 
play this out a little bit in this case, too. But in many cases, impeachment is driven more by ideals than almost anything else. I mean, an abject failure to reach an ideal in a certain situation. Absolutely. So the the history of impeachment is long and complicated, and Larry Tribe deals with it in his book very ably and so on. But in that particular case, and it was something that weighed on the minds of uh, the founders when they were writing the Constitution and the impeachment clauses, Burke had pursued somewhat quixotically, very quixotically, in fact, the impeachment of Warren Hastings, who was the, it's complicated, but essentially the British governor of Bengal of India. And he had committed gross atrocities against what was then called the native population, the indigenous population. And Burke wanted him impeached and fired. He wanted him removed and he wanted him held responsible for his criminal misconduct. Very few American conservatives are fully aware of the reality that Burke's moral greatness depended on the fact that he was doing the equivalent of prosecuting the Blackwater mercenaries, prosecuting people who had misbehaved in a foreign adventure. That was core to his moral sense. And Burke knew that the impeachment was probably doomed. He understood that the likelihood of his getting a vote for conviction in the House of Lords was quite remote. But he pursued it nonetheless exactly on the grounds that there were foundational aspects of law. There was an idea that Hastings used as a defense exactly what Trump and in the personage of Barr is using as a defense. That is, I'm the magistrate. I'm the president. I'm in charge. And therefore, I have a right for an incredibly wide leeway to say what's right and what's wrong. I should be free to pursue things as I choose to. That was what Hastings said. How dare you micromanage my administration of India? And what Burke said is, if we allow mere arbitrary whim, if we allow the will of a tyrant in any context to trump, (laughs) to supersede the rule of law, then the rule of law will no longer have any meaning. We were talking before we began our official conversation about all the things that Burke either said or didn't say that get ascribed to him. And I think one that may even be in the latter category is, you know, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. That's him implementing that idea, right? That he's not going to win this. But if he does nothing, he's fallen short of the standard he sets for himself. Right. And he's saying that there are principles that are independent of their efficacy in the world, that there are principles we have to appeal to. Now, Burke, if we want to get just a little bit in the weeds here now, Colin, (laughs) thought that those principles fell from the deity. They (laughs) fell from God. God, as did the founders in many respects. We don't have to share that conviction to understand that there is an idea of law, of something that we all subscribe to, that's independent of politics. You know, Nancy Pelosi, who I doubt read my comment, actually put the exact same point that I was trying to put in much more idiomatic and direct language only a couple of days ago. She said, look, there are all kinds of political questions that we can debate. Some of them are of enormous gravity, how we treat refugees, separating them from their parents. That's of enormous gravity. The climate of the planet, the future of the planet, that's a question of enormous gravity. In some ways, it's a question of far greater gravity than the conduct of our foreign policy in Ukraine. But those are properly political questions. How we choose to deal or not deal with global warming is a question that it belongs to the realm of politics. Using the power of your office corruptly to benefit yourself at the expense of the nation and to use the power of your office in order to blacken the reputation of a political rival, that goes to the heart 
of the idea of law. That goes to the heart of the very possibility that we have to practice politics. We can't practice politics at all if the system that supports them has been corrupted by the people most responsible for executing them. That's a difference. And the difference between that idea of the rule of law and our necessary and very significant and powerful arguments about politics have to be kept separate. Progressive people sometimes don't do them. You know, they, you'll hear people saying, well, why aren't we impeaching him for his sexual predations with women? Or why aren't we impeaching him for the government's conduct towards refugees at the border? And so on. But those questions, I think, do somewhat miss the point. It was exactly the point that Burke made. It's exactly the point that Pelosi is making. Some questions, very grave, belong to the realm of politics. Some belong to the realm of principle. The questions that this particular impeachment raise belong to the realm of principle. And when it comes to principle, we can't simply compromise them away because they're likely to be politically ineffective. All right. While you were speaking, I actually changed into the white pantsuit that I keep here in my (laughs) office. And here's a little bit of Nancy Pelosi saying more or less what Adam just said. During the debate over impeachment at the Constitutional Convention, George Mason also asked, shall any man be above justice? Shall that man be above it who can commit the most extensive injustice? In his great wisdom, he knew that injustice committed by the president erodes the rule of law. The very idea that of fair justice, which is the bedrock of our democracy. And if we allow a president to be above the law, we do so surely at the peril of our republic. In America, no one is above the law. So there you go. And actually, well, yeah, Adam, go ahead and react, first of all. Well, no, she's saying exactly what, in less uh, magisterial 18th century language, exactly what Burke was saying when he said, it is a contradiction in terms, it is blasphemy in religion, it is wickedness in politics to say that any man can have arbitrary power. This is exactly the point she's making, that this is not a contest between one policy and another, but it's a contest between the idea of arbitrary power and the idea of the rule of law. So one might ask... Has Donald Trump ascribed to himself arbitrary power? Does he think he has arbitrary power? We offer you now this montage. I think the Washington Post compiled it. Then I have an article, too, where I have the right to do whatever I want as president, but I don't even talk about that. It's a thing called Article 2. Nobody ever mentions Article 2. More importantly, Article 2 allows me to do whatever I want. Article 2 would have allowed me to fire him. But I wasn't going to fire. You know why? Because I watched Richard Nixon go around firing everybody, and that didn't work out too well. So, very simply, Article 2 would allow me to do. I could have done anything I wanted. I don't even bring it up, because we don't even get there. Absolutely, I have Article 2. It gives me all of these rights at a level that nobody has ever seen before. We don't even talk about Article 2. So, they ruled... No collusion, no obstruction. All right, there you have President Trump, A, talking a lot about Article 2 and also mentioning frequently that he never mentions Article 2. So you have a little of both. So, I mean, Adam Gopnik, this isn't a case where we would have to try to read President Trump's mind about whether he fits the paradigm that you and Speaker Pelosi have set up. He has simply announced it over and over. Yes. I mean, he references Article 2, which someone clearly told him about at some point. You know, he heard about it in the playground. It's like sort of like the toxic water (laughs) yo-yo that, you know, passing around the playground. That'll kill you. I got Article 2 on my side. In fact, it's even more specific than that because he said 
totally unapologetically, that he has a right to demand that Ukraine investigate an American citizen at his behest in an extortionate way for fear of not getting their foreign aid. He said that he has a right to instruct China to investigate an American citizen. So he's been totally open and apologetic about the idea that his power is bounded only by his will and his whims. That's what's at stake here. Now, the next question that's totally fair to ask is, yeah, but what's the point of doing it if you're going to lose? What's the point of a district attorney bringing a case, however just and however powerful the evidence is on the side of the law, that he knows he's going to lose, either through the prejudice of the jury or the climate of the time? And there, I think that the answer is that if you don't defend the law when you see a hugely egregious violation of it, then the law ceases to have meaning. Then the law becomes vacuous. Then the law becomes a vacuum. At a minimum, what this impeachment can do is to make it clear that this behavior is in the minds of an enormous number of Americans, I think the majority, but in any case, a huge number, unacceptable. It puts a censure on that behavior. It announces that it's unacceptable because the alternative would be effectively to make that behavior normal. And that's the great danger with a figure like Trump is that from exhaustion and from a fake idea of shrewdness, exactly that sleepy sapience I cited at the beginning of our conversation, we normalize behavior that should never, ever be deemed acceptable. And, you know, I want to make sure another point that you made doesn't get lost in all this, which is that, you know, you can kind of test this question about whether it's a political process or one driven by ideals through history. You point out that Lindsey Graham is one of the House managers in the Clinton impeachment process was going up against a much more popular figure, a guy with very high approval ratings, a guy who had won in a landslide in his second election, as was the case with Nixon, who, of course, won in the ultimate landslide. uh, The the greatest landslide in America. American politics. Nixon had won 49 states. Think what we will of Richard Nixon. The notion that an impeachment is an attempt to nullify an election is on the historical record absurd. It's in fact uniformly directed at someone, well, with the Andrew Johnson is a more complicated case, but with Nixon, it was directed at someone who had, unlike Trump, undeniably won an enormous plebiscite, an enormous endorsement, if you like, from the American people. The point of the impeachment, which in those days, Republicans themselves were reluctantly willing to join, was that there was a rule of law that took precedence even over political popularity. Right. You know, I was having a conversation with a Republican columnist that I talked to a lot, and we were talking off the air, a guy named Kevin Rennie. And I said, what would happen, you know, what happens if, for example, they do go to court and try to compel the production of these witnesses like Mick Mulvaney and John Bolton, who so far haven't testified, or they could try to compel the release of the documents, none of which have been released. Least, and the Trump White House simply says, no, no, I'm not doing it. Imagine the Roberts court says, no, you have to do it. And Trump says, well, I'm still not doing it. And he said, that's when the Republican senators take the walk down to the White House and they say, we simply can't support you in a trial under these circumstances, which I think also points, I mean, if that's right, yeah, Adam, that points to the truth of the argument you're making, that they're not going to wait until there's 57% approval rating of impeachment and removal. They'll wait until some principle that that they can't abide the destruction of is being destroyed. So far, we're searching for that principle with a searchlight. You know, when (laughs) I have altered my own mind, not that my mind being altered is of any great consequence, but I have about the whole question of impeachment. I was very taken 
with the testimony of someone like Max Rose, you know, who's the Democratic congressman from Staten Island, who mm-hmm. won an incredibly tough election in a very red district, and who was clearly, for a very long time, very unenthusiastic about not getting porta potties for his constituents' soccer fields, but instead going to them with this impeachment. And that was why Nancy Pelosi was so reluctant to do it, and why, in fact, the Democrats have had to be dragged to this point. But At a certain point, as I said a moment ago, behavior becomes so egregious. And then I think as well, the issue of conscience is so transparent. Every single member of the Republican Senate, at least, knows what Trump has done and they know what Trump is worth. As many people have pointed out, if you could have a secret ballot for (laughs) removing him, they'd probably get something like 100 votes. There's There's no confusion. There's no real doubt. There's simply a political calculation. It seemed to me not a bad idea to make those of a bad conscience own their bad conscience publicly. I may have been too sanguine about that in thinking that you would have people's bad consciences. But as you say, you don't know where this thing will further play out exactly because you're dealing with personality, an autocratic personality, who is not prepared to cede any point to the rule of law. I have to make a little game theory interjection. It would have to be a 99 to 1 vote so that every Republican could at least plausibly claim that that he or she. It's like the blank in the executioner's gun, right? (laughs) Right. We had a firing squad. One guy has the blank so everyone can imagine that they have it. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to just sort of shift here a little bit. I mean, first of all, the piece is terrific. I think it makes a really great argument. You know, one of the other things that I was thinking about today in connection with your piece was uh, went back and, and read the little introduction that Adam Schiff writes to the Intelligence Committee report where he uses the phrase a president unbound, which has a sort of, you know, John Milton quality to Mm -hmm. it and gets right back to Hastings and everything we've been talking about so far. But it also made me realize that so far, I don't know if it'll go on like this, but so far it does seem like there's almost a divide on these two committees that we've seen so far, especially on intelligence, especially with Schiff. Maybe that's why they call it intelligence. Between almost an Apollonian point of view, if we could boil that down to guided by logic and intellect, and a kind of Dionysian point of view guided (laughs) by urges and chaos, you know, I mean, it's kind of played out that way. There's like a group of people who say, really, let's think about this and let's be careful how we're thinking about this. And the other side, maybe I'm being unfair to them, is kind of just emitting this barbaric yawp. Well, I share, I like your analysis, both the Apollonian, the Dionysian, and the Whitman-esque barbaric yawp. I'll buy all of that. I struggle, as I'm sure you do, Colin, to extend my empathy to those who violently disagree with me and try and understand the counter, the good counter-argument, not the foolish counter-argument about the computer server that's been buried someplace in Ukraine and all the rest of that nonsense. I think that the implicit argument that's being made is, look, we all know what this guy is like. We all know that he's out of control. But we also recognize that very rarely does his out-of-controlness lead to actual harm that either by his own inhibitions, his own chaotic confusion, or by the interposition of the people around him, the worst never happens. The deal doesn't get made, whether that's oafish incompetence or some kind of saving shrewdness is hard to know, but that's the reality. And that to alienate my constituents, to alienate my followers by telling them that their vote doesn't count, that their will doesn't count, forget the will and whim of Trump, that the will of the people who support him can be negated, can be dismissed, 
exactly feeds the syndrome, the sickness that made Trump possible in the first case. You know, I think Pete Buttigieg is a wise man when he says repeatedly, look, the question we have to address is not only how we remove Trump. The question is, how did we ever get to a situation in which someone like Trump could come within cheating distance of the presidency? So I think that there's a whole realm of reasonable argument and self-introspection that anybody who's in favor of impeachment has to make at the same time as they put it forward. But finally, it seems to me that As I said in the piece, you know, impeachment is not a substitute for politics. It appeals to the principles of law and of duty that make politics possible. If we don't act against arbitrary power, then we're essentially surrendering to it. All right. I think that's a beautiful place to end. We've been talking to Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker, author of many books, including A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism, more pertinent and relevant than ever, a must for holiday giving, and the author most recently of Stop Saying That Impeachment is Political, a piece he wrote for The New Yorker. Thank you for your time, sir. Thank you, Colin. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to give a listener question to Emily Bazelon and see if she can come up with an answer to it. We'll also do a kind of holiday-themed impeachment sketch with the geniuses from CT Improv. I'm Colin McEnroe. This is Pardon Me. It's a weekly show we're doing for as long as impeachment season lasts. We are going to go back to our A-segment guest, Emily Bazelon. So Emily's agreed to answer a couple of questions that have been brought up by listeners over the week. Emily, the first one is going to come from Jennifer. Say what's likely to happen is that Trump gets impeached, but he doesn't. he's not removed from office. Can he be impeached again? So the idea is, Probably if he gets away with this, then he'll continue doing, like, worse things. So can he be impeached again, and will they be likely to do it again if he can? Really good question. I mean, obviously, if he's not removed, he'll feel emboldened. He may want to be even more abusive. So what can the House do? The House can do whatever it wants. The House can bring impeachment proceedings again. Nothing would stop them from doing that. You know, I think in reality, we're looking at a shorter and shorter timeline before the election and a question of the politics, whether that would start to feel to American voters like a kind of eye roll redo. So I think it is very unlikely to happen a second time unless there is some really, really glaring set of facts. I mean, based on everything that we saw this week, I would worry about Doug Collins's blood pressure if he had to scream his way through another impeachment process in, in House Judiciary. All right. Here's a second question from Taid. So after this impeachment goes through all the necessary steps, does the president like face any charges after the impeachment or once the impeachment is done, it's finished, it's over, do like any proceedings or charges come after the impeachment? 
and we have to break this, I think, into two pieces. While he sits as president, I think there's sort of general agreement, Emily, that you know it's unlikely that law enforcement charges can be brought against him, or at least that anybody would ever want to put that to the test. Yeah. So President Trump will probably not be charged with a crime while he's in office. The reason for that is not a court ruling. It's a memo that the Justice Department wrote first in the 70s and again in the year 2000, in which they said that they don't think you can criminally prosecute a sitting president. I find this annoying that a memo from the Justice Department is the only thing settling this hugely important question. And I also question the wisdom of making the president while he's in office basically above the criminal law. I just wonder if that's like really the right way to go. But it is the policy. So if President Trump were to face charges, it would be in all likelihood after he left office. And when I put it like that, I think you can also conclude that it's really unlikely that that would happen even then, especially in this kind of context where the impeachment articles are not necessarily tracking criminal statutes. Yeah. So uh, once again, it is certainly possible and probably wouldn't be around one of these things. I mean, there are other things. Susan Hennessy uh, wrote uh, this past week about the fact that uh, in the Mueller report, there's this pretty obvious record of Don McGahn, White House counsel, first of all, being asked to fire Mueller and refusing, and then being asked by Trump to alter the actual official records in order to obscure the fact that Trump had asked him to fire Mueller. I mean, you know, that's pretty bad, <laughs> but, but, and maybe actionable, but it doesn't, you're sort of saying it doesn't necessarily matter how bad it is. Well, I guess I am saying that, though I sort of hate to say it. I mean, I thought Susan made a really strong point because she was saying, look, this is clearly a criminal act, like ordering someone to falsify records and uh, essentially like destroy evidence. We know that's a crime. Let's include it in the articles of impeachment. But the Democrats decided not to do that. They don't want to get back into Mueller land. They think that's going to confuse things and put them in a worse political position. And so the chances that a prosecutor is going to bring it up later just seem pretty unlikely. You know, I also think it's probably generally a good idea to live in a country where people who've been elected and served are not criminally charged after they leave unless there is some like hugely extenuating circumstance. That just is a kind of ugly picture. All right. So don't lock him up. Don't lock him up. Even if there seems to be a basis for locking him up, don't lock him up. All right. (laughs) Emily Bazelon is staff writer for The New York Times Magazine, co-host of Slate Political Gab Fest and the Truman Capote Fellow at Yale Law School. Go get charged for someone on your Christmas list. It's great journalism. It's great scholarship. And it's a pretty terrific true crime read as well. So thanks for being with us again. Thanks for having me. So what you're going to hear now, I think I have to set this up a little bit and just say that we have this terrific improv troupe who perform not too far from where we do our shows. They're called CG Improv. I'm always amazed by what improv performers can do. We didn't really tell them much of anything. We just said, come on in here and let's see if we can do some impeachment stuff. They're in the middle of doing a series of improv evenings with the theme of The Christmas Carol. So they're they're kind of in a Scrooge mentality, and it seemed like that all fit together pretty well, too. But I'm still amazed by what they did. You're going to hear Greg Ludovici, Kevin McDermott, Julia Pistel, Dan Russell, and Brian Thurston. And yeah, they are doing an improvised 
Christmas, Christmas Carol at their theater on Thursdays through Sundays, running through December 22nd. And the sketch we're running is their take on Ebenezer Scrooge having to explain to his family, which we didn't even know he had, that he is being impeached. <clears throat> How do I break the news to my family? Oh. All right, well, just better pull the band-aid right off. Uh, uh Melania, w- would you mind coming in here? Melania, hello. Would you, would you uh, have a seat? Ebenezer, what is this about? Oh, I, I'm, I'm very, very sorry, Melania. I am going to be... Im- I'm going to be... Im- Embarrassed? You're usually embarrassed. Um, Embarrassing? That, too. No, it's a different word. I'm just not used to saying it quite yet. I didn't think it would ever come to this. Well, honey, just say it. Be best. Impeached. Not peached like I normally am after my tanning sessions. Impeached. Well, I've just finished decorating our home with blood-red evil Christmas trees. Uh, Do I have to take them down? Look, I love the blood-red Christmas trees. It's a really bold take on Christmas decorating, and I love it. But um, you may have to remove it all. Well, I don't really care, do you? This means a loss of a lot of power, my Melania Scrooge. Well, just keep me out of it. Uh, Okay. That's going to be hard. Dad, 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 Dad. Me and Eric just got back from running your prisons and workhouses organization. Ah, oh. We're having such a great time doing this. We hope it lasts forever. Ebenezer Jr. Yes. I have bad news. Oh, hey, hot new mom. Okay. Hi, hi hot new mom. No, thank you. Okay. <laughs> hey, but, you know, we, we got a, such a great new workhouse. It's going to be so amazing. You guys set it up the way that we talked about? Yeah, it's all individual cages. Oh, very nice. Very nice. It's and, like and the PetSmart. Uh, good, Eric. But for people. Did you have Eric organize the coat room? Yes, he, he's been on coat duty, strictly. Are those coat hangers all in a line? Yes, they are. And I... facing the same direction? Oh. Oh, no. I'll be ba- I'll be back. No, 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 you can do that oh. later, Eric. That's fine. You can straighten them out later. Okay. Okay. What are you guys talking about? It looks real serious in here. Well, I, I have bad news. What? Um, I'm going to be impeached. Oh, good. Uh, no, well, Eric, no. It's no, bad, no, Eric. No, no, don't worry. I, it's just part of... Imp- I'm uh, part way impeached. Only half of the way impeached. Are we not going to get to run prisons anymore? No, no, I think we'll still be able to do that. We set it up so after I'm out of here, the private sector, we'll still be able to do whatever we want. Are you going to get another book out of this, Ebenezer Jr.? Yeah, but I'm going to lose another wife. That's fine. I've lost... I, I can't even count how many wives I've lost. Hey, hey, what? when do I get to write my book? Oh, Eric, here's a, a box of Crayolas. Oh, oh. <laughs> Macaroni and cheese colored. I'm gonna draw. I'm gonna draw you, Dad. You're macaroni and cheese colored. Oh, good, good boy. Aww. Good boy. Can I draw it on the wall? 
Yes, Eric. I'm gonna. We're not gonna be living here for long. Okay, I'm gonna put it right in this Oval Office. So that was Kevin McDermott as Ebenezer Scrooge, Julia Pistel as Melania Scrooge, Dan Russell as Ebenezer Jr., and Brian Thurston as Eric Scrooge. They didn't even know what roles they were playing when they started that sketch. I just want to make that clear. That's how good they are. And that's our show, too. It was produced by Betsy Kaplan and Jonathan McNichol. Thanks this week also to Kyone Wolf and, of course, Coach T, Katie Tularski, keeping us on track, making it all happen. And you can find us on the web at wnpr.org slash pardon me, or in your favorite podcast platform, or I don't know, maybe you'll just be walking by an open window and you'll hear it. And you'll just stand there transfixed because it's so darn interesting. 